Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Checkman. As underemployment grows and unemployment will grow, and many who once seemed solidly middle class are losing their economic footholds, the working class is getting larger and more frustrated. At the same time, both size and perspective make the working class more important than ever. So perhaps more than ever, Americans across the class spectrum have good reason to try and understand working class culture and experience. Millions of words have been written about the divide in America between the 1% and everyone else. But an equally powerful divide is the one between those who make policy and those who live with the consequences, even among well-meaning progressives. Sometimes the consequences of their tilting at windmills is counter to their real objectives. Part of that comes from not really understanding the lives of the working poor in America. Our perceptions of poverty and struggling all come from both our personal experience and too often from popular culture. That's why it's so singularly unique and powerful when a voice emerges that can at best connect us to make us see what that world is really like. Great voices like Eric Hoffer and Studs Terkel once made us see that world. Today, Stephanie Land adds her name to the list with her debut book, Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. Stephanie Land, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about your early years, about where you grew up, and a little bit about your upbringing that really kind of set set you on the, the path that you write about in Made. Yeah, um, so my parents had me when they were very young. Um, they were just turned 20, and my dad worked in as an electrician, and my mom um, was a homemaker until she went back to school. Um, she was the first one in our family to get a college degree, actually. And so because of that and because of their hard work, I ended up growing in the suburbs, and we didn't have a lot of money for extracurricular activities, but you know, I never thought that we were struggling uh, as a kid. And so by the time I was 28 and had kind of, you know, fumbled around in my 20s and worked at a bunch of coffee shops and figured I'd settle down and go to school at some later time because uh, I had to pay for my own college, college education. Um, I discovered I was pregnant. And so going into it, I thought like, oh, okay, well, you know, my parents ended up totally fine. And, you know, the kid's dad, I'd figured he'd come around and, and be supportive and but then when my daughter was about nine or ten months old, we suddenly found ourselves in a homeless shelter with uh, a couple hundred bucks and really nothing else. What sense did you have at that point of, of the world that you found yourself in? I mean, when you sat down every day to think about what's next and what you might do, what sense did you have of what, what options there might be of, of the world that you were now part of? Well... I think first it had never been hard for me to get a job mm -hmm. and I, I usually had two or three jobs and worked all the time and that was just kind of my life but suddenly I had to work um, not only within daycare hours um, the way the child care grants are set up because there was no way I could afford to pay for child care um, so in applying for a grant, you have to have a job and a set schedule and pay stubs first before you can qualify for child care. And that's impossible because I needed someone to take care of my kid while I was working. So um, that part of it was uh, so bewildering, um, not only 
to not be able to find someone who is willing to hire me, but what am I going to do with my kid while I'm working? Um, and then, you know, there's this whole aspect of a lot of the jobs that I had done uh, were customer service and, you know, like doggy daycares and stuff like that. And um, it was the height of the recession, and so a lot of the people who had been laid off had moved into those entry-level um you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday types of jobs. And I just, I couldn't, I was up against a hundred applicants for most positions and I had no experience and no education. One of the other things that you write about is that whether it was childcare grants or other services that you would need along the way, how cumbersome the process was, how bureaucratic the process was. Talk a little about that. Well, I not only felt like I had to prove that I didn't have any money or that I wasn't secretly driving a really nice car or um, I was told my complete and total assets couldn't be more than a couple thousand dollars. Um, Each state is different, but you're basically not allowed to save up money. Uh, And so there was that aspect to it. But then I also had to prove over and over and over again um, that I was working and that I had some type of employment and I was going there and that I was there when I said that I was going to be um, because so much of government assistance is wrapped up around this work requirement and um, that was bewildering to me at times um, because you know when you when you're applying for food stamps for example uh, you get a little bit over a dollar a meal per person and for me, you know, that was all my food money that I had for the month. And it, it was a really difficult life to um, not only budget for that, but to be able to feed a toddler and yourself in a healthy manner. Mm-hmm. Talk about the dreams that you had while all this was going on. Where did, where did, did you have time to think about moving forward at some point? I... I think it was more of just uh, knowing that this wasn't my life, like this wasn't my real life, like this, I was eventually going to get out of it. And a lot of that was my privileged upbringing and, you know, just the privilege of being a white person in America, I think. And, um, and so I kind of had this sense of like things would eventually get better, but the longer it went on, I mean, you know, I was living under the poverty line for a good 10 years. Um, after a while, I started to think of it as like this crushing sense of hopelessness. Like, even though I was doing everything that I possibly could and, you know, going to college and graduated with a degree in English and, you know, I was working as a freelance writer, there were still a couple of years after that 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 I truly struggled and I was really hungry and I felt like uh, things were not going to let up or get better. Mm-hmm. And talk about raising your child in, in this context and in this environment. I don't think she noticed much. Um, I, I think, you know, the way that her and I were together was still very much the same. I think it was, um, I don't know, I, I'm kind of nostalgic about that time in my mm-hmm. life because there were no distractions. Like, we didn't have smartphones or um <laughs> TVs or like, and so we only had each other to to hang out with each other and, and to entertain each other. And so we ended up 
doing a lot of cool stuff together. Um, you know, but I mean, she was also like three or four, so the world was new and, um, but she was sick a lot. She, um, she went to daycare centers that, um, had a lot of other children who were always sick Mm -hmm. and, and we lived in an apartment that was very moldy, um, and was making us both incredibly sick. And she suffered a lot from that. Um, and she was also shuffled around a lot. I mean, between my work and going to school and and then going to her dad's and um she became a child that needed to know what the schedule was every single day what about health care you you talk about being sick what was was the health care situation uh mia was always covered um but i hardly ever was or, or never was um the threshold for an able-bodied adult, um, even with a child under six, um, to qualify for Medicaid, uh, I think you have to make, like, a ridiculously low amount of money, like, almost no money at all. Um, So I always made too much to qualify for Medicaid, um, but Mia thankfully did, and so I could take her to the doctor. Uh, She needed, like, ear tube. She had to put, she had to get ear tubes in her ears and, like, her adenoids removed and because she was just constantly um, coming down with sinus and ear infections and pink eye and, and all this stuff. So um, I didn't have to worry about paying for any of her prescriptions or taking her to the doctor, but I couldn't even really dream about going to the doctor. <laughs> Talk a little bit about people that you worked with and the stories that you would hear from them and, and the sense of other people's experience as it related to what you were going through. You know, I I didn't have coworkers a lot of the time. Um, like every once in a while, I would work with the owner of the company or the human resources manager uh, or like another cleaner. But it was just for a few hours, and we just kind of kept to ourselves, and we didn't do any. We didn't hang out afterwards or anything. Um, I, I learned more just about the people that I was cleaning for, and. Um, they weren't always there. <laughs> Most of the time they weren't there, um, but they had left behind so many clues to the type of people that they are. Like I, I kind of felt like I was getting to know them just <laughs> from the time that I was spending in their house. And what did you come to understand about, you know, what we refer to today and we talk so much about today is, as the income divide in the country? Well, I, I, I still saw it as a huge divide. I still saw it as an unreachable goal for me. Like I, I saw like not only how big these houses were, but how hard they are to keep up. Um, but also it seemed like a lot of the people who had these huge houses, they hired me to maintain a lot of areas of, of them that weren't getting used at all. And that baffled me like, because it seemed like they were never home. They were sick and, um, you know, not necessarily any more happy than I was. Um, but yet they were maintaining like this huge property and, and house and, um, with their income and then hiring me to, to clean it for them. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about wanting to be a writer and that being part of what, what kept you going at, at various points. Well, I've been a daily writer since 
I was 10 years old, really. I had this um, elementary school teacher who kind of forced us to keep a journal, and for me it just stuck. And I read everything that I could get my hands on um, and kind of studied a lot of different writers and how they wrote. And so by the time I was in my mid-20s, I kind of knew that that was who I was deep down. Like, I was a writer, and I, but I didn't know, like, how to go about being one, like, professionally. Um, and so I figured I'd, I'd figure all that out later in life, like, when I actually had something to write about. Um, but it became kind of like this, this driving force of um, pursuing that dream, uh, not only for myself, um, like, I, I knew that that was just what I needed to do in order to live a happy and complete life for myself. Um, but because it was so much of my identity. Um, but I also wanted to show Mia that no matter what the circumstance, she could pursue whatever dream that she wanted to as well. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit about the decision to, to write made and go back and relive this experience that you've went through. Well, I, the book came out of uh, an article that went viral, and uh, that essay had started um, in college, and I was a very adverse student, and uh, so I was writing about cleaning houses and being a single mom, and all of my classmates were kind of writing about their year abroad, if they had had one. And um, and so I, I never really thought that it was anything special or uh, I didn't think people would find it interesting, but I uh, pitched the essay to Vox, and it went amazingly viral. Uh, and so my agent contacted me that morning, and, and long story short, you know, 11 months later, we had a book deal. Um, and But when I started writing the book, I was very much kind of on the surface, and I didn't think, even though I wanted it to be, like I didn't think people would find um, my day-to-day struggle just with the bureaucracy of government assistance very interesting. Um, But my editor was the one who brought a lot of that out. And through the editing process, I actually reread Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dimed Mm -hmm. and uh, and was reminded, like, oh, yeah, this whole entire book is about her trying to find a place to live. And uh, and it just kind of... remembered like how not only how difficult that was but um how unique of an experience that is and not something that people really know about like how many hurdles poor people have to jump over in order to get the resources that they need just to meet their basic standards of living and why do you think that strikes a chord. Why do you think that captures people's imagination? You mentioned the article that went viral and, and the reaction to the book, which has been very positive and, and overwhelming. Talk about what you think this captures that people are so interested in. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think the, the country and, and the environment that we're living in is just getting kind of worse and worse financially. Um, and people are really starting to struggle, and um, that struggle is getting closer and closer to home, um, especially with the government shutdown happening. Like, we saw all of these people who supposedly had really good jobs suddenly, without just two paychecks, could no longer afford to buy food. And 
you know, our our lawmakers and are sitting back and saying, like, we'll just take out a loan. Like, or the president even said, like, just put it on your tab at the grocery store. And I, I was, even I was amazed at, like, how completely out of touch um, the people who are actually, like, making and creating legislation are with the lives of the people who that affects. Um, but also, I think the story is... Um, I think people are appreciating the story more because I am like a quote unquote success story, which I hate that term because then people say like, oh, well, the government assistance system is successful when it's really not. But um, I think if I was still in the thick of it and I was still on food stamps and I was still struggling um, and, and if I was like really angry and, you know, if I was a person of color, even like, I don't think people would be listening to this story as much as they are, but because I am um, just kind of quietly talking about this and showing them what my life was like and, and I'm, you know, I'm plain faced and white and I could be your sister. And like, I have a degree, a bachelor's degree, like um, people are more apt to kind of sit down and, and listen to that. Um, But what I'm hoping is like all of, this listening reaches over into empathy and then they start listening to other people's stories that are, you know, way worse than mine. And there's millions of stories. Do you think from your own experience and and the overview that you have of it now that the system is fixable, that it can work in a way that really helps people in a functional way? I think so. I mean, I, but I, I don't know if it could really happen. I mean, we're so stuck on um, this American myth, really, that if you work hard, then you'll make it. And and so, you know, Paul Ryan and, and Bill Clinton, and they, they created this welfare-to-work um, catchphrase, and that's implying that people on welfare don't work when, you know, I think it's something like 60 or 70% of people who use food banks are working and with families and, um, you know, half the people on SNAP are, are working families. Um, these benefits are supplementing low wages. And so we either need to come to terms with the minimum wage needing to be doubled at least, or, um, we need to take the work requirements away and, and a lot of the paperwork and a lot of the bureaucracy. Um, I don't understand why if a parent comes to an organization and says, I can't afford to, fi- to buy food for my child, why we suddenly say, okay, well, uh, how much are you paying in rent? What's your utility bills? What kind of vehicle are you driving? Do you have a smartphone? How much is in your savings account, and then, like, how much are you working? And if you're not working enough, then you don't get the food benefit. And there's something missing there. Like, this, this like, humanity is missing, that these are children who deserve to be fed and deserve to be cared for in places where the people taking care of them are also being taken care of. Um, and you know, the the health insurance is still not there for children either. Um, and so I kind of preach that more, like, because I think that people could get behind um, taking care of kids uh, because it seems like this air of 
not trusting um, welfare recipients uh, is is just too much. Like we've been fed this line, the welfare queen, for 30 years or something by now, and it's like ingrained in our memory, and it's it, it's what we think of whenever we think of poverty or food stamps. Stephanie Land, her book is Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. Stephanie, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun.